Francesca Simon became a children's writer later in life after she had her first child. She talked to Michael Barclay about why her books have become so popular. Anyone who's spent any time with children in the last 30 years will know who I'm talking about when I say the names Horrid Henry and his brother Perfect Peter. They're the creations of my guest today, Francesca Simon, and they've appeared in 25 books, been translated into 31 languages, and sold 25 million copies. Your Horrid Henry books make you one of the most successful children's writers ever. How much do you think you're drawing on that childhood and your own sibling relationships? I mean, inevitably, yes. I'm the eldest of four. I always wanted to be an only child. <laughs> and also, I think, because I was someone who was really well-behaved at school. I mean, I just, you know, girly swat absolutely <laughs> sums up who I am. And then at home, I was slamming doors and screaming and yelling. And I think that Horrid Henry and Perfect Peter are two sides of everybody. But it was funny to divide them in two. I mean, this is not a conscious thing. You know, I'm I'm writing something that I, I hope is amusing. Oh, it but, is, yeah. yeah but no, but, but, but I started thinking about, you know, when, when the fourth book came out, Horrid Henry's Knits, and they started to become very popular. I started to think about why are these books pop? You know, why are these books really touching a chord with all kinds of people from all over the world? What is it about them? And I realized it was the fact that they're archetypes, but also the fact that everybody identifies with these two and parents I, it really brings out the child in them because parents don't like perfect peter and i always thought that they would because the joke for him is he's the child that we're all socializing our children to be he just obeys everything parents don't like him the child in them revolts against someone who is so obedient the anarchic energy of henry is what touches people It'll be lovely to hear you reading uh, a little bit of Horrid Henry's Perfect Day, perhaps just the opening. I will. This was actually the very first Horrid Henry story I ever wrote, and I also thought this was going to be a standalone story, but here goes. Henry was horrid. Everyone said so, even his mother. Henry threw food. Henry snatched. Henry pushed and shoved and pinched. Even his teddy, Mr. Kill, avoided him when possible. His parents despaired. What are we going to do about that horrid boy, sighed Mum. How did two people as nice as us have such a horrid child, sighed Dad. When horrid Henry's parents took Henry to school, they walked behind him and pretended he was not theirs. Children pointed at Henry and whispered to their parents, That's horrid Henry! He's the boy who threw my jacket in the mud! He's the boy who squashed Billy's beetle! He's the boy who... Fill in whatever terrible deed you like. <laughs> horrid Henry was sure to have done it. <laughs> horrid Henry had a younger brother. His name was Perfect Peter. Perfect Peter always said, Please and thank you. Perfect Peter loved vegetables. Perfect Peter always used a hanky and never, ever picked his nose. Why can't you be perfect like Peter, said Henry's mum every day. As usual, Henry pretended not to hear. He continued melting Peter's crayons on the radiator. 
But horrid Henry started to think. What if I were perfect, thought Henry. I wonder what would happen. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the story which you <laughs> tell so wonderfully, but what happens next really does turn the world upside down. Nothing works in that family at all when horrid Henry decides not to be horrid. So the message of the story in one sense is that every family needs an anarchist. Well, I think it's also that parents divide their children into the good child and the bad child, even if they don't realize they've done it. And if you ask anyone, were you the good child or the bad child in your family, they always know who they were. So these roles kind of come preordained. I think that Henry is that kind of creative impulse that we all sort of nurture, that everyone has that, that desire, that almost creative energy. The one that wants to build the castle, that's Peter, and then the one that wants to stomp on the castle. And he gives in to all those impulses that we've all been socialized to control. But you were somewhat ambidextrous, weren't you? Because I was. you were perfect <laughs> at school and horrid at home. Yes, but I also am really aware of the... My memory for the emotions of childhood is very acute. And I feel these things really strongly, even today, that feeling of injustice, the feeling that someone is getting something that you aren't, um, what it feels like to be the eldest and have to put up with younger siblings, and also the expectation of parents that their eldest child is going to be more grown up than they are because they need them to be, because they can't cope. I realize that as an adult, but as a child, it seems very unfair. You're a little child, and yet your parents are saying, oh, let her have the doll, you know, you be the grown-up. And you're basically thinking, I'm five years old. I want that doll. Why should she have it? <laughs> Is there any naughty thing Horrid Henry can't do in the books? Are there limits in your mind? Yes, of course. I mean, Henry gives the illusion of great wickedness, but in fact, he doesn't do anything that every child in the world hasn't done, hasn't called names or pinched. He never, you know, climbs up to the roof and says, aha, here are the matches. I think I'll just burn the house down. That would be really bad. And in <laughs> fact, people have told me stories of things that they did that I would never put in a Horrid Henry book. They were, they were much too <laughs> dreadful. So, so, yes. so health and safety haven't been on your tail. No, but, but I, like I say, if you look at the books carefully, you can see that there's actually nothing in there that every child hasn't done. But it always amuses me. Sometimes parents say to me, oh, you know, I had to stop my child reading Horrid Henry because, you know, they, <laughs> they did this and that. And it's always the the parents haven't read the books, and the child has found a perfect get-out excuse. You know, oh, well, Henry did that. I'm thinking, uh, no, he never did. Your child is really uh, yanking your chain. <laughs> <laughs> Tchaikovsky next, Francesca, oh. and Eugene Onegin. You say this opera, and particularly the singer, Dmitry Forostovsky, had a transformative effect on you, so that you actually fell in love with the opera, maybe Horostovsky as well. Oh, yes. Oh, are you kidding? Um, well, I never really was interested in opera, but I met John Full James, who was the then the associate director of the Royal Opera House, and he turned out to be a Horrid Henry fan, and he said, well, you know, if you ever come up with an idea for an opera, um, get in touch. And I remember thinking, yeah, right, as if. I've seen five operas in my life. I don't really care for this art form, but, you know, thank you, John. And then I... Two years later, I, started, I was writing The Monstrous Child. 
and uh, which was about hell, the Norse goddess of the dead, which I wrote with Gavin Higgins. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Royal Opera House, I don't know, I was honest with them and said, look, after they commissioned this, I don't know very much about opera, but, you know, I know about writing picture books and I know the music has to lead. And I thought, well, I've got to educate myself. So they gave me, they let me come to all the dress rehearsals. And Dmitry Vorostovsky walks out and with this shock of white hair and starts to sing. And I, I just can't believe what I'm seeing and hearing. And then I didn't know that opera could be like subtle and emotional and far from being ridiculous. I thought opera was about, you know, 50 dancing peasants and that it was overblown and silly. But to add to the poignancy, of course, uh, Howard Stotsky died very young, quite recently. He did. I mean, I am so fortunate that he turned up for the dress rehearsal for a role that he had sung so many times. He was between uh, cancer treatments and so he was performing in between. He had a brain tumour, which was uh, astonishing that, that he was doing this and that he was so marvellous. So I, I was overwhelmed by this. Dmitry Vorostovsky, with that aria from the first act of Eugene Onyegin by Tchaikovsky. Kirill Petrenko was conducting a live recording with the Vienna State Opera, and the soprano was Olga Guryakova. Great is your faithfulness. Lord God, my Father, sure as the mountains and deep as the sea, you never change, though your creatures may stumble. Ever you are and forever will be. Great is your faithfulness, great is your faithfulness, Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Father to me. Summer and winter and springtime and Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature.
pleasure to sing out in chorus of your great faithfulness, mercy and love. Great is your faithfulness, so great your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Father. Pardon for sin and a peace everlasting. Your own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Great is your faithfulness. So great your faithfulness Morning by morning New mercies I see All I have needed Your hand has provided Great is your faithfulness Father to me So great your faithfulness To such Matthew Roger is Supply Minister at Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Matthew usually has a story near the beginning of the Sunday service to illustrate the theme of the sermon. This week, the story is about being a witness. A Methodist circuit preacher was on his way home from work when he was stopped along with a whole lot of other traffic because of some incident which was further along the road. A policeman came down past the cars to tell them what had happened. And the circuit preacher said, is there anything that he could do to help? Because he was uh, a preacher. And the policeman said, no, that wouldn't be possible. Because there had been a, a wall had collapsed further along the road. And it had fallen on top of a, a lady who was on her way now to hospital. And so the preacher continued on his way and arrived home and he was hardly in the house 10 minutes before his doorbell rang he went to the door and to his surprise there were two very large policemen and they asked if they might come in and he admitted them to his house and they were able to tell him that the accident which had held him up had collapsed on a lady who they understood to be his wife. In the days that followed, 
and for a little while thereafter, those who knew the gentleman well would have said to you that in his time of mourning and grief, he gave a better understanding of what it was to be a Christian than any of the words that he had ever spoken as a preacher. Grief comes to all, and it is important that we have those who are able to assist us to come through that period of mourning, knowing that God has called those whom we have loved into his keeping. All our lives, all our lives, speak volumes about our faith. And your life and my life is to be a witness to our discipleship and to our understanding that God so loved us that he gave us his son.
Laryngentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, he looks at some more of the problems Moses faced when leading the people of Israel into the Promised Land. My brother's funeral was unlike any I've ever seen. That is where someone, in this case my brother Aaron, publicly died in front of everyone when just hours before he was alive and healthy. God told me of his impending death at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom in these terms. Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eliezer and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and die there. We did exactly as the Lord commanded, stripped Aaron of his priestly garments, had Eliezer put them on in the sight of all the congregation, taking his place as high priest. There, my dear brother died. We came down from the mountain and all of us wept for him for thirty days. And I have to say... There is a great empty space in my heart where he once was. Once we started on our journey again, I realized that sometimes we just have to fight because we don't have the choice. I'll explain this to you. We came to the borders of the land of Canaan at Arad in the desert of Negev. The king of Arad quickly came and fought against us, taking some of our soldiers captive. As one voice, we prayed to the Lord as a nation, saying, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard our voice and delivered up these Canaanites into our hand, so we kept our oath and completely destroyed them and their cities. After these victories, we packed our tents and belongings and set out from Mount Hall by the way of the Red Sea in order to go around the land of Edom, because the army wasn't really ready yet to take on such powerful opposition. We'd defeated the Canaanites and the Negev soundly enough, but the Edomites were heavily armed and well-trained with battle-hardened soldiers. But our people grumbled at the massive detour, saying, Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is not food and water, and we loathe this miserable food. Well, the response from God was swift. Fiery serpents were sent among the people, and many of the Israelites died from the bites. The response was quick from the people, and they came begging me to intercede on their behalf. So when I prayed, the Lord said to me, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that anyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. I did exactly as he commanded, making a serpent of bronze and setting it up on a standard, and instructing the people to look on it if they were bitten. The ones who did this had their lives saved. From there, we camped at a place called Oboth, then camped in the wilderness, which is opposite Moab to the east, coming out from the borders of the Amorites close to the borders of Moab. At the region of Beer, the Lord revealed to me that there was a deep well there, and we were to stop and give the people and flocks water before continuing our journey. So we halted to give the people and flocks some time to rest. Moving on, we came to the top of a hill named Pisgah, overlooking the land of the Amorites, led by a king named Sion. I ordered a de delegation of messengers to be sent to them, saying, Let us pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sion the king would not permit it, amassing his armies to come against us at a place called Jahaz. 
He really didn't give us a choice. The rest is history. We fought the armies of the Amorite king and sent him into retreat, taking their land as far as to the land from Arnon to Jabok and up to the borders of the lands of the Ammonites. There, the Ammonite king named Og set his armies against us at a place called Edrai. The Lord said to me when I saw the heavily armed soldiers in battle formation, saying, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people and all his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. Of the Amorites and Ammonites, we left none alive. We were prepared to make a long and arduous detour and not engage these nations in battle. But sometimes you just have to fight because the peoples in front of you won't ever accept you. The Canaanites and Amorites prove the point. I know that each battle is a fight for our very survival. But if the Lord doesn't fight for us, we will not survive. I wonder, in thousands of years, will our ancestors face the same struggles? The Reverend Dr. Philip Noble has many interests, which you can see on his website, bubblestrings.com. In this series on heart and soul, he's talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Today, he asks us not to jump to conclusions. Several decades ago, when the children were quite young, we had to move house and therefore the children had to move school. And the new school they went to was at that time a very modern one. It was in round design and open plan. Now that was great in some ways, but one of the problems was that the playground extended only three quarters of the way around the school. The other quarter was left for the teachers and for growing plants that would look quite nice in a garden. So the children were not allowed to go into that last quarter. Well, this is what happened one day Our son was spotted by the head teacher out of her window in that quarter where he was not allowed to be. Not only that, he seemed to be bending down and doing something in the earth. She called him into her office and asked for an explanation and he said nothing. So in those days there still was this thing called corporal punishment where you could get the strap. And she gave him the strap for being disobedient and being in the wrong place. Well, it was some years later before we heard the story of what actually happened. Because our son had been given an orange for his play piece and he kept some of the seeds. And what he said he was doing was he wanted to plant the seeds to see if they would grow. And he knew that they wouldn't have any chance in the main playground. So he thought he could just slip them into the soil round the back where the other plants grew. And the head teacher had just seen him beginning to plant these seeds. He'd never said a word to her, and she'd done the right thing in imposing the law on him. Now, I tell you that story because I want you to think about when you see someone doing something wrong. It's so easy to jump to conclusions, to make assumptions. But the word assume can be spread out to be ass you me. To assume something can make an ass of you and me. So don't assume. Take time to listen, to pay attention. Remember, that's what we talked about the last few weeks, few days. To pay attention to the things that are roundabout and happening. Maybe to talk to the person first and see why they are doing things and what they are thinking. And a wonderful thing can often happen. 
First of all, we can begin to see what is going on in their mind. And secondly, we might just learn one or two things also. It was so good to hear how Jesus in the Bible listened to people, took time to find out their perspectives, and then, with his gentle and gifted way, was able to point them to the right place to be. And that would be a place of growth and understanding. So, for today, if you find something on the news or something particularly upsetting that you come across, try not to assume you know why it's happening. If you can, learn more, find out, and then perhaps you might be able to understand what's going on. I don't know about tomorrow I just live from day to day I don't borrow from its sunshine That be. Beat-